Hello all, and welcome back to another episode of the Royal Intrigue Podcast. I'm your host, Hallie. Today we will be covering the second half of the Duchess of Berry's scandalous history. We left off last time with her discovering that her new husband, Charles, had fallen in love with one of their chambermaids. The Duchess decided that rather than be angry about the affair, she would use it as a tool to manipulate him into letting her do as she pleased thus beginning her transformation from a spoiled young princess into the chubby Duchess of Berry, a.k.a. the French Jocasta. Now let's return to the palace for more intrigue. The shift in the behavior of the then 15-year-old Duchess following her marriage would come as a surprise to many later on down the line. Indeed, it seems that from a very young age, she had learned to hide her true nature from those outside of her immediate family. Her goal, first and foremost, at the time, was to control her husband. The Duke himself still maintained a good opinion of her, as she did not appear to be jealous and permitted the affair, so long as he remained respectful to her, of course. During this time period, the new couple had been residing at the Duke's older brother's estate, as they were still waiting for their household to be put in order. The Duke of Burgundy and his wife had welcomed the couple with open arms, as the brothers were very close. The Duchess of Burgundy was also anxious to develop a friendship with her new sister-in-law. However, the Duchess of Berry had very different intentions. Just a few months after her wedding, Marie-Louise started to develop a reputation for eating and drinking to excess. She once drank so much wine at a dinner party that she had to be carried out to her carriage for all the servants to see. As for the eating, a letter from a lady at court recalled an event that occurred in December of 1710. She writes that, Yesterday evening, the Duchess of Berry gave us a great fright. She suddenly fainted dead away, and we thought it was an apoplectic seizure. However, after the Duchess of Burgundy had sprinkled her face with vinegar, she came to and was dreadfully sick. It was not surprising. For just two hours at a play, she had stuffed herself with all kinds of horrible things. Then at supper, she ate a quantity of fish and drank proportionately. It was noted that the Duchess was in the early stages of pregnancy around the time these events took place. Her sister-in-law was mentioned as being there with her, as well as showing a great deal of kindness to her. According to the memoirs of Saint-Simon, however, the Duchess was secretly jealous of the Duke and Duchess of Burgundy because of their rank and the king's favor towards them. She thus set out to strain the relationship between her husband and his brother. While living with her brother and sister-in-law, the Duchess continued to profess warm feelings for the Duchess of Burgundy in public. However, Marie-Louise was known to have conspired with the Cabal of Moudon, a group whose main goal was to keep the Duke of Burgundy off of the French throne. The cabal was composed of her half-aunt, as well as former foe, Marie-Anne of Bourbon, and her aunt, the Princess of Conde, as well as the Duke's own father, the Dauphin, who did not like his eldest son very much, because of the favor he had with the king and his studious nature. The group accepted Marie-Louise and gave her the task of poisoning her husband's mind against his own brother. By the end of 1710, the court took notice of how close Marie-Louise had become with her former enemies. The Duchess of Burgundy recognized the signs of her sister-in-law's betrayal and tried to politely avoid her at court as much as she could. 
However, the Duchess of Berry succeeded in turning her husband against his sister-in-law, who quickly identified Marie Louise as the cause and broke off all ties with her. The de Berrys moved to their own household that winter, which allowed for the courtiers to finally show whose side they were really on. It quickly became apparent to Marie-Louise that her sister-in-law had amassed a great number of supporters at court. While the Duchess of Burgundy's apartments were often filled with guests and visitors, the Duchess of Berry's remained relatively empty, in an apparent snub. She was mortified and further drove her husband to dislike his brother's wife. The Duchess of Burgundy herself reportedly was very hurt by this, as she had been very close with him prior. So, she decided to inform the king about everything that had been going on. The king himself was very anxious to keep the peace in his family, and tried to deter the Duchess of Berry's schemes by letting her know that he knew exactly what she was doing. She nevertheless continued, though. Her head lady-in-waiting, Madame Saint-Simon, became so frightened that she would be caught up in her mistress's scandals that she reported the Duchess's defiant actions to the king's secret wife, Madame of Maintenon. Maintenon encouraged Madame Saint-Simon to return to her mistress and speak plainly with her about the potential consequences of her actions. Marie-Louise became indignant and was only persuaded to take the situation seriously when Madame Saint-Simon threatened to resign. Her head maid also made Marie-Louise's parents aware of what had occurred. A direct warning from the king was issued to her and she tearfully promised to make everything right. This series of events led the Duchess of Berry to become even more embittered against the Burgundies, and drove her closer to the Cabal of Moudon. She thought that she would be able to bide her time and wait for her father-in-law to become king to exact her revenge. However, this would not come to pass, as he became ill with smallpox. Those who had once supported the Cabal suddenly realized the potential consequences of their loyalty, and quickly tried to endear themselves to the Burgundies as Louis was the next in line to become the Dauphin. The Berry's allies soon came to treat them as nobodies, and the Grand Dauphin passed away on the 14th of April in 1711, leaving his eldest son, Louis the Duke of Burgundy, to take his place. The Duke and Duchess of Berry were said to have cried tears at the news of his death. However, those tears were more for themselves and the predicament he had left them with. Marie-Louise found herself with almost no influence at court. However, the new Dauphin truly loved and missed his little brother, and was willing to put the past behind them. His wife was willing to forgive the Duchess as well, as she believed that her young age and spoiled nature had influenced her to act so foolishly. The Duchess accepted the offer of forgiveness, but still held on to her resentment. She continued to make enemies at court, and the breakup of the cabal had caused unsavory rumors to resurface about her, the most scandalous being the incestuous relationship existing between herself and her father. This rumor has never been historically proven, and seems to have been based solely on their close relationship, as the Duchess spent many hours a day with her father, this being an uncommon occurrence during this time. 
The rumor eventually reached her husband, who never believed it, but was noted of having grown weary of his father-in-law's constant presence and his wife's machinations. This caused a deep rift to form between the couple. Marie-Louise's first pregnancy resulted in the premature birth of a daughter on July 21, 1711. She blamed the king for this tragedy, as he had forced her to travel with the court to his autumn hunting palace. She initially traveled by barge, however it collided with a pier causing her a great amount of stress. She had to proceed the rest of the way by the road, which left her exhausted and causing the premature delivery. She was reported to have made a rapid recovery, and a long period of time passed without incident, with the exception of a quarrel between herself and her mother over a diamond necklace and various scoldings from her grandmother, the Princess Elizabeth Charlotte. Indeed, the Duchess of Berry would not remain persona non grata for long, as the winter of 1712 would bring with it the deaths of her rivals, the Dauphin and his wife. Measles had broken out in Paris and Versailles following a harsh winter. The Dauphin contracted the illness on February the 5th and died weeks later at the age of 26. All of the court mourned her passing, all except the Duchess, who was finally free of her rival. Death would also visit again only six days later, claiming the life of her husband, the Duke of Burgundy, who was followed by his eldest son. Only the couple's frail two-year-old son, Louis the Duke of Anjou, would survive. This series of tragic events left a small degree of separation between the Duchess and the crown itself. She became the first lady in the kingdom at just 18 years old. As such, the king saw to it that she was treated accordingly. However, he did request that her grandmother continue to keep her in check. She was honored with a circle of confidants, receiving new arrivals to the court as well as ambassadors. It was noted that she had begun to grow rather large in size around this time, so much so that the king excused himself from riding with her in his carriage, as they were both too big to ride comfortably together. Otherwise, her life at court had vastly improved, but it only seemed to worsen her attitude. She became pregnant again and was ordered to bed rest by the king, who sought to avoid the tragedy of her previous pregnancy. She gave birth to a son on the 25th of March, 1713. He lived for just three days and passed away due to convulsions. It was reported that the Duchess showed great tenderness for the child during his illness and paid those whom she had employed to care for him their full salaries. The king tried to make life as pleasant as possible for her following the death of her child. He gifted her with jewels and let her indulge in every entertainment she wished. However, it seemed that the years of tantrums and demands had taken their toll on her husband, who had subsequently agreed to leave her alone if she let him continue his relations with his mistress. She agreed, as she found his affections to be annoying. Once the Duke's relationship became known at court, the Duchess began to indulge in a few flirtations of her own. In 1713, Marie-Louise began a serious affair with a man named Monsieur La Haye, who served as an officer of honor to her husband. It is said that the Duchess was enamored with La Haye to the point of desperation. 
The affair was no secret, as the Duchess would ogle him without restraint, in front of anyone who happened to be with them in her salon. As we have witnessed, the Duchess was an all-or-nothing sort of person, and eventually concocted a scheme where herself and La Haye would run away to the Netherlands together. Now, La Haye was reported to not be a fan of this idea, as he enjoyed his life at court, and his objections to this plan would send the Duchess into rages and tantrums. When word of her affair and escape plan finally reached her already beleaguered husband, he snapped and threatened to send her to a convent. The Duke also kicked her in public during an argument regarding her conduct with La Haye. She did not have to endure this ire for long, though, because on the 26th of April, in 1714, the Duke was severely injured while hunting with the King. His horse slipped on wet soil during a chase, and the Duke pulled up sharply on the reins and recovered its footing but the pommel of his saddle struck him in between the chest and the abdomen. He continued the hunt anyway, despite spitting up blood. But rather than attribute the blood to his recent wound, the duke thought that he had dysentery and did not tell the king. He then proceeded to go on two more hunting trips as his condition continued to decline. He was treated by the king's physicians when he became bedridden. The Duchess herself was at court while this was happening, and was encouraged by the King to stay there, as she was pregnant again, and he worried that this stress would complicate her condition. The Duke of Berry died from his injuries on the 5th of May, 1714, at the age of 27. It was noted that during the whole length of his illness, he did not ask about his wife once. One thing we can give the Duchess credit for, though, is that she proceeded to take care of her husband's mistress and his illegitimate child after his death. The Duke had left his mistress pregnant as well when he died, and the Duchess retained her as a servant. After his death, the Duchess went into mourning and covered her room in black curtains. In his journals, Saint-Simon described her grief as being much exaggerated, and was used to procure more sympathy from the king. This sympathy and favor only increased after the Duchess's third child, a daughter, passed away just a few months after birth, coming on the heels of her father's death seven weeks earlier. After which, the king showered her with extreme favor and provided her with a very generous income, as well as an increase in rank, and assigned twelve guards to watch over her. In the month following the deaths, the Duchess was said to have come out of mourning, acting as if nothing had happened. She feasted, gambled, and drank to excess. The old rumors concerning an incestuous relationship with her father also gained traction, as she spent more and more time with him. The Duchess's influence at court increased yet again when King Louis XIV died on the 1st of September in 1715. The heir to his throne was the only surviving son of her deceased brother-in-law, the Duke of Burgundy. King Louis XV was only five years old when he inherited the throne of France, and thus required a regent. The regency was assigned to Marie-Louise's father, which allowed her to exercise more power than she ever had before. She was 20 years old at this time, and within a month of the king's death, she used her father's influence to move into the Luxembourg Palace. 
After making herself comfortable there, the Duchess proceeded to close its gardens to the public. This occurred after the Duchess was accosted by some commoners in the gardens, while in disguise as a middle-class lady. The gardens had been open to the public since the palace's construction, and thus the closure was not received well. To make matters worse, her old rivals, the Bourbons, saw this as an opportunity to slight the Duchess by opening up her gardens at the Hotel of de Caen. Even little King Louis XV was reported to have said, I do not intend to act like Madame de Berry. It is my wish that everyone shall enter my gardens. It is said that in her palace she acted as a queen and pursued all the pleasures that had been denied her in the past. She demanded that her father supply her with officers to command her guards, which was an honor that had never been bestowed upon a daughter or granddaughter of France. As expected, the Duke of Orleans yielded to his favorite daughter's wishes at every turn. During this time, Marie-Louise replaced her beleaguered lover La Haye with a chevalier, who was then replaced by a marquise, until she ultimately fell in love with a lieutenant, Chevalier d'Arion. The Chevalier d'Arion hailed from Gascony and was 22 years old when he became the Duchess's lover. He is described as being short and stout, with a round face covered in acne. Marie-Louise's grandmother wrote that she could not conceive of how someone could love him as he had the appearance of a baboon and was not the least bit intelligent. Saint-Simon describes him as being a pleasant man, though, with a good humor, who is very charming. He is said to be the only person that Marie-Louise would listen to and could treat her sternly when she acted up. The residencies with which they occupied allowed them to carry out the affair in both a public yet private way. The Duchess would have parties in which they would drink to excess and engage in sordid activities. Her father was reported to have also attended these parties, as well as the orgies they devolved into. In the winter of 1716, the Duchess shut herself away in the rooms of her residence, stating that she had a bad cold. However, she actually had become pregnant by Rion, and had managed to hide it until she went into labor. She gave birth to another daughter, who only lived three days, thus marking her fourth child to die in infancy. She was said to have become very ill following the birth, and thought to be near death. She miraculously recovered, though, and began to fear for her soul, as the priest who had visited her to give her her final rites looked upon her with disappointment. As we have come to expect of the French court, this secret birth did not remain secret for long. Someone close to her had been passing letters to the press, and it became common knowledge that the Duchess had been keeping a lover and had given birth to his illegitimate child. Satyrs created poems and songs commenting on the Merry Widow's many lovers and her failed pregnancies, one such being cruelly entitled The Duchess of Berry's Diapers. On the 7th of May, in 1717, Tsar Peter the Great arrived in Paris to meet with the Duke of Orléans. Marie-Louise desired to visit with him so that her importance at court would continue to be acknowledged. She sent a messenger to compliment him, and he in turn agreed to visit her at the Luxembourg Palace. It was noticed that the Duchess appeared to be stout as a tower to those who witnessed her interaction, which implied that she was once again pregnant. Indeed, the Duchess was said to have gained even more weight by the spring of 1717. 
She developed a red complexion on her face and sold all of her horse riding items, as she could no longer continue the activity comfortably. Her grandmother stated in her letters that every evening she sits down to a table at 8 or 9 o'clock and eats until 3 o'clock in the morning. While still in bed, she devours all kinds of cakes. She never rises before midday, and for a digestive, she drinks strong brandy. She shut herself away yet again that spring and through the summer, citing her weight as the cause. It was reported that she gave birth prematurely to her fifth child in July of 1717, who soon died after. She was only 21 at the time. The rumors of an incestuous relationship between the Duchess and her father had never really subsided. The tales that circulated concerning her scandalous parties and the Duchess's unpopularity with the public only served to cause the rumor to grow in prevalence. Satirical writers continued to create works making fun of the regent and his daughter's lifestyle. This spurned the creation of a Christmas song that reads as such. Very big with child, the fruitful berry, said in humble posture. Very sorry at heart. Lord, I will no longer have such lusty ways. I only want Rions, sometimes my dad, here and there, my guards. She would become pregnant again and miscarry her sixth child in the spring of 1718. A seventh pregnancy would follow soon after in July of that year, both of which would be attributed to her father and not her known lover Rions. Interestingly enough, one of the writers that had joined in on poking fun at the Duchess's many pregnancies was the famous French philosopher Voltaire. He first became involved when he was arrested in 1716 after commenting to a police informant that the regent's daughter was a whore, citing her confinement as proof. He was arrested yet again the following year when he penned verses that implied that the Duchess's father had sired her illegitimate children. For this, he was imprisoned in the Bastille for 11 months. While serving his sentence, he completed his famous play, Oedipus. For those of you who are not familiar with the original Athenian tragedy of Oedipus Rex, it is the story of a man who is destined to kill his father and marry his mother. He tries to avoid this fate, but fails and unknowingly has children with her, only to realize too late what has occurred. After Voltaire's release from the Bastille, the play premiered on the 18th of November in 1718 at the Comédie Française, with both the regent and his daughter in attendance. The 22-year-old Marie-Louise was said to have shown up in full royal regalia, maybe in an attempt to show her enemies that she was not about to be intimidated. She was visibly pregnant and was heckled by a member of the audience. Ironically, her presence at the play's premiere actually contributed to its success. Three months later, she would attend another performance of the play with her nephew, Little King Louis XV, again trying to show that she was not phased by the public's perceptions of her. However, this would backfire, as the room was rather hot, and the Duchess fainted while a character was alluding to Oedipus's incestuous relationship with his mother, and the crowd went wild, thinking that she might deliver her supposed inbred child right there in the theater. However, she recovered after a window was open. A month after this horrific incident, Marie-Louise went into labor with her seventh child after a period of heavy drinking. The birth was extremely difficult, and it was thought that she would die. 
a priest was sent for by her father to administer her final sacraments, but the priest refused unless her lover Rion was sent away. Her father begged him to save the soul of his daughter, but the priest held steadfast, as she was living in sin. The back and forth ended when she was finally able to give birth after being in labor for days. She became frightened and embarrassed that the priest had refused her final sacraments. After a few days, she and Rion secretly married against her father's wishes. She was no longer the self-motivated princess she had once been, and the love of her father had only served to damage her reputation more. She was indeed a broken woman. Sadly, her attempts to make amends with her father would lead to her ultimate undoing. For you see, he was no longer willing to ignore his daughter's behavior when it came to her secret marriage to Rion. He sent Rion away from Paris on a campaign just a few weeks after the secret ceremony. Marie-Louise was now alone and still very weak from the birth. She still tried to overcome this and make up with her father by throwing a reception for him at a residence outside of Paris. This party, though, would prove to be her last, as she became very ill soon after. Her grandmother, who had never shied away from scolding her, wrote of her condition. I found her in a sad state, suffering from pains in her toes and the soles of her feet until tears came into her eyes. I went away because I saw that she refrained from crying out on my account. I thought she was in a bad way. A consultation was held by her three physicians the result of which was that they determined to bleed her in the feet. They had some difficulty in persuading her to submit to it, because the pain in her feet was so great that she uttered the most piercing screams if the bedclothes only rubbed against them. The bleeding, however, succeeded, and she was in some degree delivered. Marie-Louise Elizabeth d'Orléans, Duchess of Berry, died at the age of 23 in the early hours of the 1st of July, 1719. It was said that her father was inconsolable and wept so much that it was feared that he would suffocate. An autopsy revealed that the Duchess had been just a few weeks pregnant for the eighth time with a female fetus. Marie-Louise was laid to rest in the Basilica of Saint-Denis, her wealth was returned to the state, so Rion would not be entitled to it. Rion himself was reported to have returned from his campaign and retired to private life, remaining a widower. While some may label Marie-Louise as a French Messalina or a haughty Jocasta, whose life was filled with nothing but sin and tragedy, I view her as being a rare woman for her time who did what she wanted and didn't much care about what people thought of her. She lived her life how she pleased in a time where women were used by their families as tools and bargaining chips for power. There is also a glimmer of hope that remains within her story as well. For you may have missed earlier that I didn't mention the fate of her seventh child. Indeed, it seems that the child that she had birthed in her final ill-fated delivery had survived and lived to adulthood, becoming the exact opposite of her mother, a nun. I'm Helly Maddock, and thank you for listening to Royal Intrigue.